Hey everyone, this is Rick with the Center for Christian Civics. Before we get into this week's episode, I think I need to offer some context. I scheduled this interview about two weeks ago, and I recorded it a week and a half ago. The initial reason I scheduled it was to discuss public shaming, private shaming, and encouraging repentance, all based around the video of a woman in Central Park calling the police on a bird watcher. I know that right now that story seems quaint, and by the time we recorded this on June 3rd, it had already started to feel like ancient history. So instead, we ended up getting into topics we didn't plan for ahead of time, and you might feel like we're jumping to some conclusions, but please stick it out. The fruit of our guest's ministry in a fairly neglected mission field, I think, earns him the benefit of the doubt with any Christian. And if you're having a hard time understanding where he's coming from, well, stick around for future episodes, because the whole point of our podcast, the whole point of our blog, the whole point of our classes is to help one another identify ways that we don't understand or agree with each other in the church, and then build those bridges toward understanding and mutual encouragement. That said, let's get into the episode, and then we'll come back together for prayer. You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and I tend to think about Luke 15 a lot. One of the very first books about Christianity that I read after becoming a Christian was Henry Nouwen's Return of the Prodigal Son. And then a couple years later, I started attending a church where Luke 15 was a cornerstone text. The pastor even wrote a book about the parable of the rich man with two sons. And when I started doing this work at the Center for Christian Civics, I naturally then thought about the prodigal son and the elder brother a lot. It's a story of repentance and a challenge to listeners to assess how we treat repentance. So dealing with political arguments, I think a lot about what it looks like and how we act when someone changes their mind. The parable obviously points to the elder brother as an obstacle to repentance, and it calls us to follow in the heart and in the footsteps of the father who doesn't position himself as a stumbling block. And we've addressed this idea in some of our content before. Juliette Vidral wrote a great article for us a while ago on why we should welcome politicians flip-flopping and I even did an interview with Joshua Harris a couple years ago about what it's like to say you're wrong in public. But I got to thinking about this again last week when a white woman got in a confrontation with a black bird watcher in Central Park and video showed her escalating the situation and potentially putting the black man's life in danger after he asked her to leash her dog. The woman was publicly shamed and I'm just not sure how to react to that. How can we react to incidents like these in ways that don't end up driving the perpetrators farther away from repentance and restoration? How can we react appropriately to sin like this without shaming the sinner into the arms of resentment or into the arms of extremists? And to have a really unstructured conversation with me about this, I'm really excited to welcome back Steve Park. He's been on the podcast before. He and his wife, Mary, have a decades-long, rich legacy of ministry in this city in Washington, D.C., by uh, starting and leading Little Lights Urban Ministries, but also by acting as mentors and hubs of mutual encouragement for 
pastors and ministry leaders throughout the D.C. area. And in addition to all of that, they also run faith-based racial literacy courses for people who have moved to D.C. and are trying to help get our heads around the history and legacy of race in this city's culture as we're trying to make it our home and orient ourselves in this new place. So as I was thinking about how do we react to racially charged displays of aggression and how do we react to people who perpetrate those things without driving them into extremes, he was naturally the first person I thought of. And Steve, I'm really glad you're with us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's good to be here. So as we get into this, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about why you were the first person I thought of for this? Tell people a little bit about the racial literacy courses that you run. Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, like I I started this um, ministry working with low-income children, youth, and families in D.C. for 25 years. I'm Korean-American. I've been living and working in an African-American community for a long time. I was an atheist as an adult and became a Christian. And one of the things that broke my heart after becoming a Christian was to see how racially divided the, the church was. So that's always been on my heart. That always broke my heart to see the lack of unity in the body of Christ, even though I know how beautiful and compassionate Jesus is. And so that disconnect, I've always had a heart for bridging. And so four years ago, I started a class called Race Literacy 101, which tries to help, especially Christians, understand why we have the racial divide we currently have and why there's this underlying hostility and disunity in the body of Christ. So I teach history, there's some science, there's scripture, but a large part of, I feel like, the disconnect is a completely different understanding of history of our country and how systematic racism has been put in place and how racial ideology developed. And so I think we've really not been educated to really understand what's happening in our country when it comes to issues of race. And you said systematic racism. And I know that even earlier today, I a friend asked me to get involved in a conversation he was having with mm-hmm. someone else in the church. To, at the heart, the heart of it was whether such a thing as systemic injustice exists in a biblical framework, whether there is such a thing as group sin or collective sin or inherited responsibility, or if Christianity only teaches personal, individual sin of commitment. When you say teaching the history of systemic racism, can you provide us a little bit more cultural and spiritual context for that? So yeah, I'm not a a historian or theologian. I'm a practitioner. But if you look at the Old Testament, it's really about this corporate relationship that Israel has with God. When the prophets to address Israel, it's it's really most of the time it's as a corporate group rather than by individual names. And same thing in the even in the New Testament, when we read it in English, we see you are the light of the world, right? That's a plural you. That is not you like John and Steve. That's like you, the church, you, the body of Christ, are the light you of the all, world. Maybe, yeah, y'all is would be a better <laughs> actual interpretation. It's very corporate. Like it's you as a whole, as a group, as a church, you, the body of Christ is not just an individual. It's the whole church corporately is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. 
And so it's not just Steve who's the bride of Christ or John. I mean, I, I mean, just one example for people who may have a hard time understanding maybe the concept of corporate sin or institutional sin. Yeah, I'll try to use an example like the sex abuse ca- scandal of the Catholic Church. You could say, oh, there's some bad priests, individual bad priests that are sexually abusing children, right? You could just say, gosh, if you know those bad priests, if we could just get rid of those few bad priests, that would ignore the fact that the institution of the Catholic Church has ignored the complaints, has ignored incidents, has not removed priests. We're, we're negligent in not being proactive about ending sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. So that's an example of like a corporate institutional sin that the sex abuse situation in the Catholic Church is not just a few bad individual priests. The whole institution of the Catholic Church failed and sinned to protect victims and future victims. And that's sinful and that's wrong and that needs to be corrected. If you've built and maintained a system that does not stop these things from happening when it becomes aware of them, you are to some degree responsible for it because you are enabling it. You're very responsible for it. When the Catholic Church ignoring the victim's requests and pleas is responsible. I mean, that's why they've had to pay a lot of money in lawsuits, right? <laughs> is responsible for negligence, for creating a basically an unjust system where the vulnerable, I mean, the, the Bible talks about this over and over t- about God's heart for justice and protecting the vulnerable, protecting the oppressed, protecting the fatherless. And the, the Bible talks about that. And when you don't do that, that's sin. When you neglect justice, you are neglecting the commands of God, that there's sins of omissions and there's sins of commission. And that is just as much sin uh, when you fail to protect the vulnerable. And one example of systematic racism, obviously slavery, Jim Crow are very obvious examples of systematic, governmentally sanctioned oppression and injustice. Another example would be something like redlining, government policy that denied people of color, especially African Americans, access to home ownership and home loans after World War II. It completely segregated residentially our country, including cities in the North, a place like DC. But we never learned that history of government sanctioned racial injustice and racism that basically shaped our entire country and the demographics of our country, even the places we live, the neighbors we have. And so it dramatically shaped our society, but we get almost zero education on topics like that. There's an old historical adage that Mm -hmm. geography is destiny. And that's as true on the macro scale as it is probably on the micro scale. Your immediate surroundings do affect what opportunities you have, what experiences you have, what you see of day-to-day life that shapes your expectations of what the world is and how you are supposed to interact with it. And especially if that geography was intentionally engineered to be unequal and separate. And so I think it's more so when it's not just sort of I happen to live by a river or, you know, or a mountain. It's, it's more so when the powers that be have engineered it to be 
segregated and unequal. And then we never learn about it to try to correct it. So tell me a little bit about who usually is attending your uh, literacy classes. You know, we've done eight rounds of these classes in D.C. So, so far, it's tended to be Christians who live inside the D.C. Beltway because that's who could access it and that's who had the interest. And so, but it's usually a very racially diverse group. And also, in some ways, surprisingly, the age range was very diverse. So, we had older folks, we've had high school students, we've had younger folks. So, we've had a nice diversity of both age and, and racial makeup, but most going to evangelical churches. Evangelical can mean a few things. Like when you say evangelical, what do you mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a loose term, but usually for me, it means it's, in, its influences are coming from predominantly white institutions. And there's a strong emphasis on personal regeneration and authority of the Bible. Okay. And what, what has been some of the most challenging content for people? Can you share some stories of how people have confronted hard things and worked mm-hmm. through it? Yeah. It, it is a self-selecting class most of the time. There's been a couple of times that I've gone out to churches in the suburbs, predominantly white churches in the suburbs, and taught a shorter version of the class. But it, it, even in that case, people volunteer to take the class. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a, 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 a vast sort of like a section of the church. It, it is self-selecting. But and some people have, have pushed back, like not wanting to either believe it or trying to minimize some of the injustices. But by and large, people have been very receptive. And I think that the most typical response is like shock that they haven't learned a lot of this information before. Because once you see it, you realize how relevant it is and how much impacts even how we live today, but that they've never learned it. And when people realize that, I'm assuming they there's some degree of looking back on their own actions and feeling maybe shame, maybe embarrassment, maybe disappointment in themselves. How do you help them through mm-hmm. that? Or how have you seen other people help yeah. them not be paralyzed by that? I do my best to try to keep encouraged. If one, I affirm people who share that level of honesty, that it takes a lot of courage to be honest, if, honest enough to say, I feel ashamed or I feel guilty or I feel overwhelmingly sad. <laughs> so I always affirm people who are being very honest and I, I think that's why I like doing it as a group is that, you know, people are in it together and, and people receive encouragement from other people. But I also try to tie it to discipleship and say, you know, God gives us grace. God, if you know, he calls us to repentance, but he also forgives us if we confess our sins. And we have to have faith that God still forgives and, still, <laughs> you know, and is willing to work with us in our imperfection. But I also try to tell people you know what? This is not all your fault. This is how systematic racism works, is that a lot of wh- whites did not get this education. And so they don't necessarily know the depth of racism in the country. And so it's hard for them to understand maybe the pain of people of color, especially African-Americans, because they haven't learned it to the depth necessary because it wasn't taught in our schools. It wasn't taught in our churches. And so I don't 
uh, you know, people shouldn't place all the blame on themselves individually because it's a corporate, it is a corporate problem. I mean, it's a corporate problem. Let's jump into the kind of more newsy topic that made me want to schedule this in the first place. Obviously, what happened last week in Central Park with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper, no relation to each other, believe it or not, was not the biggest story about racially motivated threats and violence by white people against black people in the US. The murder of George Floyd is on everyone's mind right now. But before the protests really picked up, there was a lot of chatter on social media pointing out how pernicious Amy Cooper's statements and behaviors seemed, where she had told him ahead of time, I'm going to call the police and say an African-American man is threatening me. And then there's a lot of analysis of the way her voice changed. And she made a point to audibly sound scared when she was on the phone. And I've seen lawyers talk about the fact that recordings just like it have been played in courtrooms as evidence that this person was obviously undergoing a real threat, because how else would they sound that scared? And that they were surprised that this time it was finally caught on video. And so a lot of people express a lot of anger at Amy Cooper. She lost her job over this. Can you talk a little bit about where even well-meaning people, people who don't think we bear personal animosity, where that impulse to, in a moment of distress, play the race card like that, to tell someone who asked us to leash our dog that I'm going to call the police and say a Black man is threatening me, where that knee-jerk impulse comes from? How is that baked into us over the course of our lives, even in a liberal left-wing city like New York? In the work you've done, especially training people to serve in Little Lights and doing the Mm -hmm. racial literacy training, do you have any experience or insight into the origins of those impulses? You know, I mean, my gut feeling is, is we sort of instinctively learn how do we hurt somebody with our words, right? If somebody, if you feel like this person is confronting me, I don't like, I don't like it. And I'm going to, I start get, getting defensive. You may start immediately trying to figure out what is the worst way I can hurt this person because I don't like what he's doing to me. And of course, when you're dealing with a person of color, I'm going to use the race thing to hurt them because I don't like the way this person is making me feel. And so, you know, but she obviously escalated that to a crazy degree by, you know, threatening to call the police. She didn't just call him a slur or just call him a name. She threatened to call the police trying to get back at somebody who was making her feel uncomfortable. But then in the process, she basically ended up endangering his physical life so that she could basically get back at him for holding her accountable to, let's say, the rules of the park, right? Or rules of leasing your dog, right? You could call that what you want, but she, at the end of the day, she it was endangering his life. But I think it's our natural instinct if we feel hurt by somebody or somebody's holding us accountable to something that we don't want to be held accountable to, we will get defensive and we'll start lashing out. She just took it to another degree. And because we live in in a society where there's history of police brutality, her saying, I'm going to call the police and say, you're threatening me, just changes the dynamic from I'm going to get back at you to she is now physically threatening his life. I don't know how closely you were following this story, but how do you feel about the reaction you've seen in the news, online, on social media to Amy Cooper after this, after the video was released? Is there even a productive way for us to talk about the actions of people 
who aren't typically public figures. I know I'm personally at an impasse about figuring out how to respond to that. I think there is some good that can come from shaming. There's, there is healthy shaming. I mean, one example is, is the civil rights movement in the United States. I mean, the civil rights leaders purposely brought in news cameras to their demonstrations. And they knew that if the police acted with violence, it would bring shame to the South and it would thus bring shame to the United States because this was being broadcast all over the world. And so it's out of that sense of shame when people are watching and people are like, that is evil or that's awful, that there can be change. Sometimes you, you do need some healthy shame because there are shameful things being done. And to pretend like it's not shameful is to dismiss the pain of people who are being impacted the most, in this case, African-Americans. Her behavior was shameful. Of course, people take it to such an extreme, that's when it gets unhealthy. Things like death threats. Who knows what she has been called, you know. So it becomes unhealthy real fast on the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Right? (laughs) So let's talk about offline then. You had said earlier that you tend to want to affirm the courage of people who can admit that they're ashamed of their actions. Yes. Assuming Amy Cooper's expressed shame in her personal life, what, from your perspective, would be the healthiest way for her friends and her family to react now? They can affirm that shame. What do we do next for people in our lives who say, you know what, I was wrong and potentially wrong about things in a really bad way. And I'm ashamed of how I felt or what I said or what I did. This is the sad part is there's not a lot of places that she can turn even for professional help, right? You know, we have support groups for alcoholics and drug users. We may have support groups for sex addicts even, right? We don't have a lot of support groups for people coming out of racism and racial prejudice. And maybe that's something we need. You know, Mm -hmm. we may need professional counselors and support groups for people who have awakened to their shame and to their recognition that I've been either very complicit or I've had very racist views. And I think that's a real need. Uh, So if anybody's out there listening, you know, I do want to seize this opportunity to, again, if you're in the D.C. area, point people toward your racial literacy classes. If you're not in the D.C. area, there's our friends at the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission and at the front porch might be able to fill in some of those gaps for you if that's what you're looking for. Although now, because of the pandemic, we are starting to offer race literacy virtually for the first time. So people outside of the D.C. area can now take the class. But the first class, because we wanted to keep it at a maximum of 100 to to have small groups. so many. It's sold out very quickly over the weekend. And now there's a – we're trying to open up a second class, but it's like just by the sheer response, that class is basically already full, another Mm -hmm. 100. So there is a great deal of interest, I think, people trying to – wanting to – which is encouraging. They're wanting to understand what's happening in our country why is there this divide? Why is there so much pain? So I'm encouraged by that. Is it mostly people trying to understand where the divide is? Or are you finding yourself often preaching to the choir? 
Or is it a middle ground where you're equipping people who have Mm -hmm. sympathetic impulses, but don't yet know how to put them into action? I think for when we were doing the in-person classes in DC, where we literally met physically for 11 weeks, most of the people were definitely on the sympathetic side. So it wasn't as difficult to try to convince. Of course, there were many exceptions to that. But by and large, people were already pretty sympathetic. They were just trying to learn and understand more. But one consistent thing across the board, even among people of color, was surprise and shock at the information that they never learned. Uh, so with this virtual uh, class, I mean, this is, we haven't started it yet. So I think there will be more people who are responding to current events that may not have been sympathetic in the past but they're needing to try to cope with what's actually happening and get some handle around why our country is uh, in chaos and, and violence and disarray. As I started working in politics and then worked in ministry and in this organization, one of the things I've become increasingly disappointed with was the way history was taught in middle school and high school for me. It was mostly taught as a list of facts, names, and dates loosely tied into a series of cause and effect that was just overwhelming and hard to memorize and disconnected from any real sense of drama, interest, or effect on the world. Here are some dry facts about the past you have to memorize. As you get older and actually live through historical event after historical event and start thinking about how these would have been framed in the history textbooks you grew up with, Mm. you start to realize, I think, the way we squander this brief opportunity to teach people about their place in the grand scheme of human history if it's framed even just slightly differently or given just a little bit more room to breathe, a little bit of anecdotal illustration on top of the raw fact that it feels like even things people have learned about before they're experiencing for the first time. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between being told that in the 1960s and 70s, legislation was often passed to de facto prevent non-whites from living in certain parts of cities across the country And getting a chance to actually watch an hour and a half documentary about the effect that had on the lives of the people who couldn't get homes in certain places and their descendants. Turning any historical event Mm -hmm. into something even two-dimensional instead of one-dimensional makes it feel like something incredibly new. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, and this is also goes down to systems, right? Our educational system hasn't prepared us well for the reality of race and living with race in America. And, you know, we can't put all the responsibility in the education system. We could also, you know, point to the institutions of churches that also hasn't prepared us well to have congregations and fellowships across racial lines, because that part of that would require us to learn some history. So I think so many institutions have failed, and, and this is part of the systematic racism of, of sometimes of just negligence and pushing things under the rug and trying to sanitize the reality of our history, including in our church history. And we are reaping the fruits of trying to sanitize that and try to make the problem go away by pretending like it never happened or th- and it doesn't exist. An illustration my wife and I talk about a lot that she heard, I think, 
right around the time we started dating was that confession is driving down a one-way street in the wrong direction and seeing the sign that says wrong way and saying, yep, I'm driving the wrong way and continuing (laughs) to go. (laughs) Repentance is seeing the sign, saying I'm driving the wrong way, and then turning the car around. I personally understand the impulse of wanting to just turn the car around and pretend like nothing ever happened, it's over with, I'm going the right way now. But to actually get there, you have to confess that you're going the wrong way. You can't make it better by saying it wasn't wrong in the first place, or I got in the car when it was already going in this direction, so I don't have to be the one responsible for turning it around. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm driving well, even if I'm in a car going the wrong way, you'll have to turn it around. (laughs) And to take, I think, to take your uh, metaphor a little further, that's what we're experiencing right now in the United States, is the head-on collision of the unwillingness to turn around. And we just had a head-on collision, and that's why there's so much chaos. And we have a choice to make now. Do we now turn around and go the right way? Or do we just say, you know what? I'm just going to build a bit bigger truck so that I can just run over whoever is heading uh, against my, you know, my direction, even though I'm heading down the wrong way of a one-way street. And before we close, I just want to ask, what do your prayers look like right now? You've mentioned the head-on collision we saw. We're at, like I think, day five of protests in D.C. becoming increasingly tense, starting with police tear gassing nonviolent protesters. And then it's descended into urban warfare at times from there. What do your prayers look like? What are you thanking God for? What are you lamenting? What are you confessing? What are you petitioning for right now? That's a very heavy question. First, I immediately think about, I'm praying for especially my African-American brothers and sisters in Christ who I'm in relationship with, who are co-workers, who collaborate with me, because this time is so difficult for them the most. And seeing those videos, emotionally, it's so difficult for them. And, and so my prayer is for them that God would grant peace to them, that God would give them hope, that they would not despair, that nothing will ever change. So my first prayer is for them, for comfort for them. You know, I lament, of course, the actual deaths of the people we've seen. You know, whether it's Breonna Taylor, even though there was no video, but just hearing about that incident, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, George Floyd, you know, you lament that they're no longer with us and their families are grieving, lamenting the violence. You know, I saw a good meme that I posted that said, if you want nonviolent protests, listen to nonviolent protesters. People have tried to do nonviolent protests and people didn't pay enough attention. And so it's sad to me that. And I lament the fact that it's taken this level of trauma for people to pay attention and to say, gosh, maybe I need to learn or maybe I need to do something or maybe, you know, I lament that it it had to, we had to get to this place. And, you know, one of my staff, her friend's uh, parents' business was burned to the ground in Delaware. You know, so there's like innocent victims of a social problem, including the business center. So I lament that people are losing, some have lost their livelihoods because that they're, they're sort of the innocent victims of a social problem we have not really confronted and resolved. People are realizing we just can't keep going business as usual. And I hope that sense 
is sustained, even when the physical protests die down, that the vast majority of Americans say, we can't keep doing things the same way. I mean, 1968, they came out with the Kerner Report after the 68 riots. And the Kerner Report pointed to this, this systematic racism, these unequal societies of black and white, and how we need to address that. And we ignored that. And so we now have another opportunity 52 years later to say, you know what, we need to stop pretending like this doesn't exist and really confront it, learn about it and figure out a way forward to bring greater sense of justice and equity in our nation. And so I'm hopeful that this could be that kind of watershed moment, but I'm also frightened that it could also turn more violent in the next, you know, few months, the next even couple of years with how extreme things are. There's a lot to pray about. And I mean, and not to mention, yeah, we're dealing with a pandemic and how the pandemic has impacted black and brown communities and Native American communities disproportionately. I mean, we can't we don't even have time to talk about that. But there's just so much to lament. But I'm hopeful that long-term lasting change is possible because so many people are being awakened. All right, that was my conversation with Steve Park of Little Lights Urban Ministries and Racial Literacy 101 in Washington, D.C. In just a moment, we're going to pray together through some of those themes Steve mentioned at the end of the interview. But first, I want to spend another minute or two dwelling on the idea of group responsibility and on the idea of being responsible for history that was created by someone else. Race obviously plays a big part in American history and in the dynamics of American politics. As Steve alluded to, racially motivated decisions about how to structure our communities, how to deploy our resources, where to place certain things that would be a boon to people's lives or be a hindrance to people's lives. These things are an indisputable reality, and the effects of those decisions continue to be felt. For Christians living in a monarchy, for Christians living in a wholly totalitarian regime, maybe all they can do is worry about their personal responsibility, provide shelter and comfort and protection for people who are left out or made vulnerable. But Christians in the U.S. are different. We are, and if you've ever listened to a couple episodes of this podcast before, you've probably heard me say this before, we're part of the body politic, the group of people who, together, are responsible for the authority, identity, and legitimacy of the state. If our state is doing something morally egregious right now, we don't get to say it's not our problem or not our responsibility. Our elected officials, even at the highest level, only have the authority of Joseph or of Daniel. The body politic, the citizens taken together, are the ones who have the responsibility of Pharaoh or of Darius. We are responsible for the actions of the people we hire. And if our country is dealing with the lingering after-effects of earlier decisions, we're responsible for that too. It might not have been our fault. It might have happened a long time ago. Our families may not have even been here when it happened. But the fact that we're here now means that we are the ones responsible for stewarding this democracy now. And that makes this our responsibility. And that's a responsibility we have on purpose. God gave it to us by putting us here. And that means it's also a responsibility that he can give us the courage, the humility, the forbearance to actually follow through on. 
Steve mentioned that it takes courage to admit we don't know something, or that we overlooked something, or that we closed our ears to someone's cry. When I was in college, a Campus Crusade speaker talked about Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham's insistence that Sarah say she was his sister, so that the people of the land they were going into wouldn't kill him and take her as a concubine. The speaker asked us, who sinned in this situation? If God is mad at someone, who is it? and why? Is he mad at Abraham for lying, for making his wife lie, for putting her in a position where she got taken as a concubine anyway? Maybe. Maybe even probably, yeah. But is God also mad at the people of that city for earning a reputation, for creating a culture where that was a legitimate concern to foreigners who were traveling in their midst? Yes, almost certainly. Babylon's sins were Babylon's sins, but God carried Israel into Babylon as exiles to turn it into a more peaceful, more just, healthier place. It was Israel's job to undo the legacy of Babylon's wickedness, even at the expense of Israel's own dissolution, suffering, and inconvenience. The U.S. is a big, diverse country with tons of regional cultures, regional histories, and then also with a nationwide culture underpinning it, a federal history made up of and transcending our regional histories. As people of the cross, as members of the body of Christ, we don't get to view our lives as happening in historical isolation. We're not alone and adrift in history. We're grafted into the story of God, bringing people to himself and sending them into all the nations to be agents of his goodness, kindness, and righteousness, as Jeremiah puts it. And as Americans, we're not subjects who are born under authority, die under authority, and just have to hope for the best in between. We are citizens, members of a rolling, ongoing 300 million person Pharaoh committee. We don't decide what country we've inherited. The car may even have already been going in the wrong direction when we got in it. Or maybe it was just already pulled over and idling when we got in it. But we're in it now. And we have to work together to decide to turn the car around and start driving in the right direction. That might mean it will take a long time to get back to a baseline, to get back to that very first wrong way sign that a generation or two or three generations before us left miles back. But I know that I, for one, want to get there. And I hope that we all do, too. No one else can do this for us. This is something God has commissioned us to do by virtue of the fact that he put us in a position to do it. Now, let's join together in prayer. At the end of the interview, I asked Steve what his prayer life is like right now. To close out, I'm going to pull out a few of the themes he mentioned, and for each one, I'll offer up a really brief scripture reading and then a brief prayer And then I'll leave a few seconds of silence for you to pray through that theme and passage on your own. We'll do three or four rounds of that, and then we'll close out the episode. So we're going to start with John 11, verses 33 to 36. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? 
Father, we join Steve Park in praying for those who are grieving, and we ask you for hearts that hear the cries of the afflicted and join them in their grief. Make us like your son, who knew that Lazarus would be raised, yet still felt, still shared the sorrow of those who had loved him. Hear the cries of the afflicted and hear our prayers. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Father, in this time when it seems like there is so much to mourn, violence, riots, murder, military action against our own people, and countrymen closing our hearts and ears to one another. So much to grieve, so much to lament. Teach us to lament like people who have a hope. Teach us to walk that fine line of deep, full, passionate mourning about the fact that the world is not what it is meant to be, coupled with deep, full, passionate certainty that one day you will make it right. The secret things will be made plain, the low places will be made high, and the high places will be made low. James 1.19 This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Father, because of this confidence, teach your people to be quick to listen and slow to speak, especially when we are confronted with people we don't understand, who are raging against perceived injustices we don't believe or don't see. Give us humble hearts. Your word doesn't say anger is always unrighteous, but that it must be slow. At this time when so many people around us feel that they have been patient with their anger for decades and decades and decades, and their anger is finally bubbling up, teach those of us who did not share in their sufferings to be slow to anger ourselves, slow to try to explain it, and quick to try to listen and hear where we do not yet understand. Lastly, Jeremiah 29.7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Lastly, Father, we pray for you to make us into people who seek the peace and the well-being of the entire city, that we not pursue a false peace for some that comes at the expense of peace for others. Lead us in this work of repentance, of healing, of restoration, so that when the resurrection comes and the story of all humanity is made plain, we will be able to look at what we did during this crisis and hear, well done, good and faithful servants. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who invites us into your kingdom, prepares a place for us there, and asks us to be his hands and feet until he returns. Amen.
All right, that's it for this week. Thank you again to Steve Park for joining us. You can visit our website, christiancivics.org, to learn more about Little Lights Urban Ministries as well as Race Literacy 101. I also mentioned the Front Porch and the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission during our interview, and I'll toss some links to them up on our site as well, and also a link to more information on the Kerner Report, that report Steve mentioned during our conversation. We'll be back with a shorter episode next week. Until then, please... Stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for continuing to strive to think, speak, and act differently in the public square.